Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now Podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus in on a number of key congressional legislative initiatives, including the latest on fiscal stimulus, plus a look at some notable pandemic-related measures that have been rolled back in several states, and we will touch on some other timely topics as well. Though joining me here on the line this morning, glad to welcome back to the podcast Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. So, Shane, as always, it's great to be with you. Happy Friday. Looking forward to our conversation. Thanks, Dan. Great to be back with you on this uh, Friday morning. Absolutely. So, Shane, I know it was a very busy week on the legislative front, and we will get to a few of those items in a couple of moments. But first, I want to touch on the fact that the Senate did hold hearings with officials about those January riots up on the Capitol. I know at the time we spent a lot of our time here on the podcast reflecting on those riots, but it seems like the Senate wanting to receive some answers, maybe get some closure on what happened. So who did we hear from this week, and what were some notable takeaways? from these hearings. Yeah, no, you're right to point out, you know, the reflection period on what happened on January 6th is not over. It will continue for some time. And that was reflective, um, as you noted, in hearings, multiple hearings, not just one. You know, you had the Senate Judiciary Committee who had uh, FBI Director Ray testify. You also had the Senate uh, um, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee um, uh that had uh, several people testify, including the commanding general of the D.C. National Guard, um, assistant director of the FBI, uh, Jill Sanborn, who's in charge of the counterterrorism division, um, and others. I think, you know, uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're hopeful that anytime there's hearing that it's bipartisan. Um, there were moments that were bipartisan, but there were absolutely moments where these hearings were uh, partisan, and, and it's, of course, unfortunate when something like that happens, especially in a hearing that's important like this. I think, you know, the, some of the key takeaways that were highlighted were, you know, that there is uh, no evidence that this was um, uh, the, the January 6th attacks were, you know, Antifa or BLM, you know, everyone who has been arrested or implicated um, uh, has been, you know, uh, of that um, QAnon flavor or or maybe one of those groups like the three percenters, uh, the Oath Keepers, et cetera. So, you know, Democrats definitely um, reiterated that point. Um, but I think maybe the largest takeaway that may see um, some action in the future is that it took three hours and 19 minutes for the National Guard to get sign off from the Department of Defense to um, come and assist the Capitol Police. Um, and that is, um, you know, very disheartening to lawmakers to hear why it was not, it took so long. Why when, you know, um, it was on TV for millions of Americans to see, you know, the National Guard, which had really some permission beforehand uh, to uh, because there was this expectation of, you know, sizable crowds that could get out of hand. Um, but there was some disconnect there. So I think we'll see that um, avenue pursued more by lawmakers to try and unpack it, get in even more detailed what exactly happened. Um, was it a situation of, you know, the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing, or was it more 
um, just straight bureaucracy and, you know, having to go through too many hoops to actually act? Or was there something else to it? Um, so I think that's going to be one we follow for um, weeks and months to come. Well, it was helpful to receive some clarity from these officials. And clearly, as you pointed out, Shane, things could have been done differently, maybe in terms of the response and the response time. So I'm sure uh, more to come on this. But thank you for providing some reflections on what we witnessed this week. I do want to spend a few moments, move over to legislation. Where to begin? It was a very busy week. And I know a couple of days ago, maybe even yesterday, the House passed H.R. 1, which targets anti-corruption measures as well as voting rights. So what exactly does this legislation call for, Shane? And what are the real implications here? Yeah, great question. I think that it passed, you know, uh, late Wednesday, may have gone actually into the hours of technically Thursday. But, um, you know, this is actually not a new item. Um, You know, uh, last year, House Democrats passed um, as H.R. 1 before um, this voting uh, bill, um, and, you know, uh, this is kind of um, a retool of it. So it's not a pure reaction to um, the 2020 elections. It's something that Democrats have been working for uh, uh, for years now. Um, you know, it was a very partisan vote. Um, I don't think any Republicans voted for it. Um, you know, what's in the bill is that, you know, if legislation has a many provisions, but um, it definitely touches on topics such as mail-in voting, early voting, voter registration, voter access, uh, ballot harvesting, um, voting by felons, uh, and public funding of candidates. The public funding of candidates is one of the main reasons uh, Republicans opposed it. You know, this is a, a piece of the bill where if someone gives $200 uh, to let's say a congressional candidate, they would there would be a twelve hundred dollar match from the federal government. So you know Republicans are opposed uh, to uh, this public funding of such a great level to these smaller donors. Um, additionally, the bill sets federal standards, um, which preempts a lot of uh, state laws that have been set over years. And you know Republicans oppose this as you know kind of a federal mandate when states have been. Uh, in charge of their elections for, you know, a very long time. So, you know, I think the reality is while it narrowly passed the the House, it's not going to pass the Senate. Um, We don't see enough bipartisan support to to meet that 60-vote threshold in the Senate. You know, the Senate may hold a vote later this year on it uh, kind of to, uh, you know, uh, pose Republicans versus Democrats on this issue. But, you know, I think this is not something we're we're following it, but we're not following it with the expectation that it becomes law. Appreciate the clarity on that, Shane. So another piece of legislation which did not exactly attract a lot of bipartisan support. I know the House also passed this week H.R. 1280, which addresses police reform. So can you walk us through what that contains? Yeah, um, this is kind of commonly known as the George Floyd Act, and it has several components to it. Um, Among other things, the bill bans law enforcement agencies from racial profiling um, using chokeholds. It updates the statute for uh, prosecuting uh, police misconduct. Uh, It creates a national database to track police misconduct. Um, What you've seen in several of these incidences over the years is that sometimes a police officer 
um, who is reprimanded or fired from one uh, police uh, station, you know, maybe moves to a different uh, town, city or state and gets on with that police department. And so the, that intent for a national database would be to try and uh, prevent that from happening. Uh, additionally, the bill increases funding for police training. Um, but, you know, a lot of the items that I just named are bipartisan. But what is controversial is in this uh, House bill, the bill uh, limits qualified immunity, which is shielded um, a lot of these police officers and other government officials from being sued over actions performed on the job. So if someone is, you know, injured or killed uh, by a, a police officer now, you know, uh, there can be a lawsuit, but that lawsuit would be against the police department, maybe the town or the city, uh, but not that individual officer. Um, so this uh, provision would allow that individual officer to be uh, sued. Uh, Republicans oppose this as, you know, um, they have concerns about what this means long term and and uh, uh, hurting uh, police officer retention and uh, hurting uh, police officer recruitment long term. So, you know, I think if this provision is removed, I think it, it stands a greater chance of seeing some action in the, in the Senate this year. Um, so, you know, I think there are some hopes for a bipartisan package to come together here. And you're seeing some outreach being already done to Republican senators to see if there can be a middle ground. Um, I think there is a middle ground. The question is, is will both sides, you know, give up a little to meet there? Um, so of a lot of the bills that we will be talking about, this is one that actually has a chance to uh, come into law on a bipartisan uh, scale this year. But, you know, they're not there yet. And and I think um, we'll definitely be keeping a, a, an eye on this one as we move forward. Well, that sounds encouraging. And at least we seem to be moving in the right direction. We'll see what happens if any modifications are made and certainly a piece of legislation that we'll look forward to following up on as the year progresses. So thank you for that, Shane. I know last Friday and we've spoken about fiscal relief for weeks, if not months now. But since we last spoke on Friday, that $1.9 trillion piece of legislation, it did pass through the House. I believe the Senate is currently combing through it. A lot to get through within that bill. So what's the current status, Shane, and what's the likelihood that this will eventually get over the finish line? Yeah, no, I think we're about a week away from it getting uh, over the finish line and passing into law. You're correct. The Senate is currently um, working on it. You know, uh, as we've talked about before, you know, some of the bill had to be modified, like that minimum wage provision. And, you know, that does not uh, um, conform to the Senate rules uh, of this unique budget reconciliation process. So that had to come out. Um, and now, uh, as of this moment, you know, the um, Senate Republicans, most notably Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, insisted that the bill be fully read on the Senate floor. So at over 600 pages, it took, I think, 11 hours to do that. So next um, and probably starting shortly will be uh, a votorama, which is um, a nice D.C. term for saying that they're going to vote on a lot of amendments. So that will eat up some time. So I would expect that, you know, by tomorrow, uh, the Senate will have its final vote, um, and we, as of, as of now, we expect all 50 Democrats uh, to support it. 
50 Republicans to oppose it and then Vice President Harris to be the tie-breaking vote. There's always a possibility for one or two Republicans to vote for this, but you know, they had a procedural vote to move forward, and it looked to be a party-line vote, so we'd expect that to hold. Um, now, because the Senate had to make some of these changes, uh, like the minimum wage uh, provision, this, the bill will have to go back to the House. So I would expect the House to vote on this um, uh, Senate package early next week, and then President Biden signing into law uh, before the end of the week. So um you know, the light is at the end of the tunnel. Um, as you noted, we've been talking about this for weeks and months. And I think uh, uh, by the time we talk next week, it'll be law and we can start talking about uh, the next big item for, for D.C. Definitely. Perhaps we'll close the loop next Friday on this, but all eyes will be on the Senate today and throughout the weekend. So thank you for the update on fiscal relief, Shane. Maybe one final topic we can hit on this week with respect to the pandemic. I know a couple of states this week announced some pretty notable rollbacks of guidelines, measures to combat COVID-19 spread, including I heard last night my state, Connecticut, will be rolling back restrictions when it comes to capacity levels at indoor venues such as restaurants. So that was encouraging to hear. But might this all be indicative of a trend to come at the state level? And I'm curious, Shane, how has the White House been responding to this week's developments? Yeah, no, and that's that's a very notable, you know, that Connecticut has also started this trend. You know, I think the um, the the press was mostly talking about states like uh, Texas and Mississippi, which is um, going to be doing away with their mask mandate um, in the coming days and weeks. Um, you know, other states like I think Alabama said not just yet. Uh, we'll we'll get there, but we're not quite at the point where we can uh, get rid of the mask mandate. So you see this patchwork um, evolving. Um, and, you know, I think that's bringing a lot of frustration to the White House, you know, because we're hitting that point where progress is being made, you know, especially as cases and deaths go down and vaccine, the vaccine distribution goes up and we have this third um, vaccine online now. So, you know, I think the White House's concern is that, you know, we're at a great point, you know, just stick with the plan for another few weeks and months and we'll be there and you'll be able to relax some of these rules. So they're clearly frustrated. And you saw President Biden call um, some of these moves by Texas and Mississippi Neanderthal. So that obviously led to jousting back and forth, um, you know, and you're going to see this continue out, uh, continue to play out. Um, you know, the White House continuing to try and, and be cautious and optimistic while other states are ready to get going. You know, as I, as I sit here talking to you, I'm thinking to myself, it's basically been a, a year, um, you know, that many people have worked from home. And, you know, that leads to uh, many people kind of getting that cabin fever and you see people anxious to get back to, you know, quote, normal life. Um, and that is not even thinking about all the millions of people who lost their jobs or their small businesses, et cetera. So, you know, I think, you know, uh, we've hit that point where people are, because there are three vaccines available, they're getting excited for uh, that return to normal life. But the White House is just trying to be cautious and say, we'll get there. You know, you've, you've done this for almost a year, a year. You can do it for another few weeks. Um, but, you, you know, you're also seeing a kind of division line as, you know, some people 
um, like Governor DeSantis of Florida, who's being talked about as a potential candidate for a president in 2024. You know, um, they're trying to set themselves apart from other Republicans um, and make a name for themselves. Well, it is hard to believe here we are in early March, closing in on a year since we've been in this pandemic period and will, of course, continue to have to keep our guard up, though it is encouraging that we're moving in the right direction here. But Shane, very productive conversation this week. Thank you for your insights, your reflections, and for covering all of the ground that you did with us. I wish you a nice weekend, and we'll look forward to picking the conversation back up again next Friday. Thanks, Dan. Great to catch up with you and looking forward to next week. Likewise. Thank you, Shane. And again, today we have been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, please be sure to reference the latest edition of the Washington Weekly Publication, which can be located on UBS.com forward slash Washington Weekly. For clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the Washington Weekly publication directly. The Washington Weekly podcast is part of the UBS In The Now podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at ubs.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.